If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help Dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power Dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything Dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. For today's episode, I spoke to Lara Maiklem, the author of Mudlarking, Lost and Found on the River Thames. Lara's book is about her passion for mudlarking, which is scouring the foreshore of the river in search of historical objects that have been washed up by the tide. I spoke to her about some of the finds she's made over the years and what makes mudlarking such an alluring obsession. So for listeners who may not know anything about mudlarking, what is it and why is it so appealing? <laughs> um, well, mudlarking is is basically uh, going down onto the foreshore of a river. In my case, it's the Thames to search for lost and uh, forgotten objects. So a lot of what I find is very old because I searched the Thames. Uh, it's It's got 2,000 years plus of history. Uh, so the, when the tide goes down, when the tide's low, that's, that's when we go down to search. Um, and the reason I find it so obsessive really, because I'd say probably I am obsessed by it, is it, it's that real sort of hands-on history. It's really unique. It's that feeling that when you're down there, you're almost time-travelling. And when you pick something up, you know that you're the first person, sometimes in thousands of years, to have touched it since the last person used or dropped it. And that that feeling is 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 priceless. I, I can't imagine anything, you know, that would match it. And um and and the Thames has such a, a wide, rich and varied history and you never know what you're going to find next because every tide reveals something completely different. So it's it's almost like a giant history book, I suppose, and each tide is turning a page um, and that, that that is why I find it so obsessive. When you're searching the Thames, how far back do the finds go? What are some of the oldest objects that you've found? Well, I mean, obviously, the oldest things are the fossils, because, uh, you know, you do find quite a lot of fossils, and, and they tell the story of the river itself. Um, the oldest man-made objects are, are worked flints. Uh, so I've got some Mesolithic flints, scrapers, and the end of a little arrowhead. And they're, they're wonderful, you know, they're, they're thousands and thousands of years old. Uh, and then it, you know, then it really is a, a timeline. It goes right the way through Bronze Age, Iron Age, medieval, Saxon, Viking, Roman. You can find something of everything down on the foreshore. It's just a mixed up muddle of history. There's no layers, you know, easily definable layers at all. It's just a mixture of everything. In the book, you characterise most mudlarks as either hunters or gatherers, you call them. 
Can you explain what you mean by that? Yes, I mean I've <clears throat> I've been mudlarking for about fifteen years, and and I've I've seen it change quite a bit. Um, when I first started, there weren't that there were a lot less people doing it, and there weren't that many women, um, and it's changed quite a lot. There's a lot more people doing it, and a lot less detectorists doing it, um, and and people who dig and scrape. So there's a lot more people like me who search the surface. And and I divide, I suppose, the searchers. I've sort of watched people over this time, and I've, I've divided them into two groups. I suppose I am generalizing a bit, but, but there are other people who are very driven by the find. And they tend to be the people who, who scrape and dig and almost force the river to give up. It's, it's contents. And then there are the people more like me. I go down and I have quite a philosophical approach, I suppose, to it. And I only take what's been left on that, that recent tide. So if it's lying on the surface and I can find it just using my eyes, then I take it with me because I sort of reason that if it's not picked up, it's going to wash away or it's going to be damaged. And so I'm kind of saving it for history. Whereas I sort of think cutting into the river's surface and, and taking what it's not ready to give up yet it is a very different approach i go down there for more than just the the finds the things that are down there for for any for to get away from the city it's my escape from the city as much as anything else and sometimes i come back with absolutely nothing um but most times i come back with something so if we were to head down to the foreshore of the thames with you what would some of the most common objects we might come across be um, the, the most common objects are is pottery. There's pottery down there that that really d- sort of tracks the history of London from prehistory through to IKEA plates, um, and clay pipes. Uh, there's clay pipe stems absolutely everywhere. I found them from the tidal head at Teddington right out to the estuary, and um, in parts of central London particularly, they are absolutely everywhere. They really are the the, the cigarette ends of history, I suppose. Something that's really interesting in the book is that you detail and come across everyday objects which were once ubiquitous, but I think now we might not be familiar with. Can you give us some examples? Yeah, I mean, the things that I find, I mean, I'm never going to get rich from from um, mudlucky. I'm not a treasure treasure hunter at all. I'm, I'm, I'm probably best described as archaeologically curious or sort of, I have a fascination with this, just the ordinary side of history. And it's really the rubbish that people lost and threw away. The sort of things that you're just not going to see in a, in a museum. So, um, you know, things as, as, as innocent, I suppose, as a, as a, just an ordinary dress pin that, they're, they're very common if you know where to look and how to look for them. But um, the objects that I find are just, I suppose, just rubbish. The throwaway things on the whole. Um, and dress pins really, I think, summarise that for me because they they were made in their hundreds of thousands, but each one's a little work of art, really, because each one is, is handmade, the old ones, the old copper alloy ones. Um, and they date from between 1400 and 1800. And everybody wore them and they must have shed them in in their hundreds of thousands because they wash up in these sort of nests and piles the the river washes them together um washes objects together by weight and size and the dress pens pins particularly wash up in certain areas and um they're just so ordinary that i I think that they summarize for me the, the ordinary nature of the objects that i find it seems like you have a remarkable ability when you spot something of working out whether it's of interest or not. When you do find something, how do you go about working out what it is, how old it is and where it might have come from? Um, a lo- well, a lot of mudlark is is knowing what you're looking at. Um, 
you know, it's all very well going down there and having a look, but unless you know what you're looking at, at is worth picking up and taking home, then then you're going to leave an awful lot behind. And I know that I have left an awful lot behind. I mean, I've been doing it for quite a while and I've learned on the job, I suppose. Um, and you, you sort of get to know whether something's sort of feels old. It just looks old. Um, and um, I've got a library of very strange books for a start. Um, I talk to other mudlarks and um, there's the Portable Antiquity Scheme database, which is invaluable uh, for looking things up. There's over a million objects on there now that have been recorded there. There's sort of lost other lost and forgotten objects that have been found in fields and, and beaches and other rivers. And that's a great resource. And also um, under the terms of my license, I, I do report the objects that I've found. Anything historically important and over 300 years old needs to be reported to a fines liaison officer. And they're brilliant. You know, you take it along to them and if you don't know what it is, they often do know what it is. And if they don't know what it is, then they have a whole, you know, resource of people and books and, and places that they can go to to find out. So I've really just learned as I've gone. And there's a you get a lot of the same objects on the foreshore. So you'll find a lot of the same pottery. So you learn about the pottery as you go. You, you learn about certain things, what they look like. And then occasionally I'll find something and I have absolutely no idea what it is. And that's when I usually take it off to my fines liaison officer and get some help with it. And you have had finds personally that have fallen within the category of treasure. Can you tell us about those? I have yes you're legally uh, you legally have to report treasure and it's a bit more complicated than this but simply put it's anything over 300 years old that has a percentage of precious metal gold or silver and um, I have had several things reported uh, one was a 16th century posy ring which was made of silver that had the uh, the words I live in hope engraved on the inside and that was particularly poignant because you sort of imagine the person that that threw it maybe threw it into the river after they lost hope it's quite sad um and the other object is a gold lace end uh that's also 16th century it's it's tudor and it's part of a mini hoard that's gradually washing out of the foreshore in a place that will be remain un, unknown to everyone um and uh there's there's I think almost 200 objects, little tiny pieces of gold have come out of this area. And um, they are thought to be, because each one is it's either squashed or broken in some way, they're thought to be possibly a bag of scrap gold that was, that was dropped or thrown into the river at some point and the bags rotted away and all these little pieces of gold are scattering across the foreshore. Um, so that's with the with the Museum of London. They they wanted that. They're collecting as much of it as they can, and um, I've donated that to them as part of their um, their collection. And the posy ring I got to keep, so that's in my collection. Picking up on your point about the posy ring and the personalised inscription on it, you have quite an interesting approach to objects which are explicitly personal. Can you explain that to us? People throw things into the river because I suppose it's moving. It takes people's problems away with it and it takes away the objects that they don't want anymore. When they throw it in, it's gone. They don't have to see it anymore. And um, I find a lot of personal possessions, old ones and new ones. Um, love tokens. I found a lot of love tokens. The bent sixpences. I've got eight of those now. Um, the uh, the posy ring. When I when I 
slipped it on my finger. It just felt strange and wrong to wear it because somehow somebody had wanted to get rid of it. It just didn't have a good feeling about it. Um, Mudlarks find a lot of modern wedding and engagement rings, particularly under the bridges where people have thrown them in. Um, I found a a modern wedding ring and I, I just didn't want it. I just didn't want it in my life. It didn't feel right. It felt like whoever had thrown it in meant for it to be in the river. So I threw it back. Um, not all mudlarks do some some of them take them but for me it just feels too too personal um sometimes you find love letter torn up love letters photographs the more modern things i found um, a box of someone's ashes human ashes um which posed a real moral dilemma you know you find these things and it's almost like you're intruding into other people's lives and it really does make you stop and think um and with the ashes i i, I thought about it for a long time and I'd wondered why someone hadn't opened the box and, and, and scattered the ashes. And, and I thought, well, I don't know anything about these people. It's not for me to, to scatter this person by any means. I can't take it away with me. So I, I dropped it back into the river. But, you know, at some point it's going to wash up somewhere else and, and maybe be someone else's dilemma. What are some of your most historically significant or interesting finds? I suppose that goes back to just, just the ordinary things. You know, you, you're constantly finding out about the way ordinary people lived and um i think i think personally the historically interesting things are things like shoes because they they are preserved so beautifully in the thames mud because it's anaerobic it's it lacks oxygen so it, it preserves organic matter perfectly and to pull something like that out of the out of the mud and to actually see something that's made of leather that would otherwise have have rotted away. Um, That to me is historically important because, you know, in in museums, there's all all lots of gold things, metal things and and things like that. But when you pull something out that's made of wood or or leather, that to me feels like a, a little piece of a little little time capsule almost that that's unique to the river. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. To be, to be found on the foreshore, you know, you're going to find a lot more near where there was an old set of stairs and people were constantly getting in and out of their the wherries and the boats and unloading things than you will out in the middle of the estuary because you're not going to find a great deal out there. Do you think the Thames is unique in what it offers a mudlark or do other places with rivers offer similar opportunities? A lot of people ask me that because, you know, not everyone is is lucky enough to live in London or near London. As far as I know, the Thames is pretty unique simply because it has such intense human human habitation, so a lot of finds, um, such a, a lengthy human habitation, you know, since the Roman times, if not before, and because it's it's tidal, so you have access to the riverbed twice every 24 hours. There are rivers that are tidal that don't have that same intense human um, habitation, uh, and there are rivers that, like the Seine, if you could get to the riverbed of the Seine, it would be incredible. You'd find just the same sort of things, but it's not tidal. I know that they drained part of the um, the canal network in Amsterdam for the, when they were building the metro and they found 700,000 objects in the canal. So the canals in, in Amsterdam have the same objects there, but they're not tidal. So as far as I know, the, the Thames is, is pretty unique. But 
people use rivers as rubbish dumps. They've always used rivers as rubbish dumps. They're very convenient. So even the smallest river running through a town or village is worth searching because you'll probably find Victorian bottles or, or things like that people have thrown in it if you can get down onto the riverbed. You start the book at the tidal head in Teddington and you take the reader all the way down to the estuary. What are some of your personal favourite locations to hunt for treasure along the Thames? I search lots of different places. I I search a lot in central London because that's where you find the most and the most varied objects. I love the estuary just because it's just so, it's just lovely. It's just barren and and windswept and just beautiful and you don't see anyone i rarely go west just because i it's easier for me to get to east london i mean there's 160 kilometers of tidal thames give or take um so it's a long long bit um i tend to go to places according to my mood if i'm if i'm feeling sociable i go to central london because i know i'll meet lots of people if i'm feeling less sociable then i go further east where i, I know i won't meet anyone um I write about a lot of the places I go, not all of them. Um, I'm not telling everyone about all my secret places. I've got one particular place that I love going that I'd never tell anyone about because it's it's my private place. Um, so, so, yeah, it really depends on my mood where I go to. Um, but I probably have about five different places that I, re- I visit regularly. So what do you think makes a really good mudlark? Hmm. Um, I think patience is the most important thing. It takes a long time to get your eye. Well, you're very lucky if you go down there and you're you're you instantly get your eye in and you're good at mudlarking. It it's something that just take it's just time and persistence and you you learn to read the foreshore and you learn about the river and how it works and how it deposits things. So it's um I would say the most important thing is is definitely um, time, persistence and patience. Some people can do it and some people can't. Some people never get their eye in. They just give up. And some people are really good at it and they get it very, very quickly and they just start seeing things. Um, for most of us, it's just time. It's time and patience. Something that struck me in the book was that it's not just about wandering down to a random section of the Thames and seeing what you come across. There's a huge amount of historical detective work involved that you um, talk about. Can you give us an idea of some of the preparations you make before you head off on a mudlarking trip? Yeah, I mean, like I say, the, the, the tidal Thames is 160 kilometres long. That's a lot of um, that's a lot of river. And if you think you've got both sides of the river as well. Um, so you need to have some idea of where's good to search. So the old maps are fantastic because you can look at them and work out where the stairs were and the causeways, um, maybe where there was a warehouse, what people were doing where. And that gives you some idea of where there might be things to be, to be found on the foreshore. You know, you're going to find a lot more near where there was an old set of stairs and people were constantly getting in and out of their the wherries and the boats and unloading things than you will out in the middle of the estuary because you're not going to find a great deal out there. So, so it's really worth doing a little bit of research. In terms of um, preparation to go mudlarking, you are, you need, obviously need to check the tide tables. You need to know when the river is going to be low because that changes every day. And you have about th- two to three hours either side of the low tide. The tide tables also tell you how low the tide's going to drop. So, you know, ideally you want the really low ones because then you'll have more foreshore to search. 
And when you go down there, you need to know where your access points are, how to get on, and more importantly, how to get off. Because when the tide turns, you can get um, you can get cut off. There are pinch points, and you really don't want to be wading back through through icy cold river water like I did once. Um, and um, you need to check the weather. You need to check out when it's going to get dark. So there's a lot of preparation goes into a for me anyway goes into a mudlarking. Anyone going down onto the the foreshore of the River Thames needs to have a license to look. If you're going down with the intention of searching, you need to have a license. They're easy to get. You can get them from the Port of London Authority and they actually own the, the foreshore. So they're the landowners. And you just apply to them online and you can get an, uh, a permit that lasts three years. Um, and under the terms of your permit, there are areas that you can't go into, you can't search. There are scheduled monuments like Queen Hyde. And there are also restrictions on whether you can disturb the foreshore on, in certain areas. So all that information comes with your permit. And it's really important to read all of that and to mudluck responsibly it's also really important to report what you find and it's really important to know what 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 people are finding one of the most fascinating stories um in the book that i really wanted to ask you about was the story of dove type can you just tell the listeners a bit about what dove type was and how it found its way into the thames yeah, I love the Dove's type too. It's um, it was a story that began at the turn of the twentieth uh, century, and it involved a man called Cobden Sanderson and his business partner Emery Walkman, and together they created this typeface, which Cobden Sanderson uh, considered to be the most perfect type ever created. He imbued all sorts of quasi-religious. Um, associations with it and he only wanted to use this typeface to print the most perfect books and they printed uh, the bible and the works of milton and the works of wordsworth and they didn't produce many books but they were very successful and the two men worked together quite successfully uh, for a number of years um, but Cobden Sanderson became more and more obsessed and more and more difficult to work with and eventually the two men fell out and walker decided as his severance he wanted half of everything from the Dove's type. And um, I should say that they set up the Dove's type on uh, the banks of the river at Hammersmith. And as part of his severance, he wanted half of everything, and that included the type. And Cobden Sonsons couldn't countenance that. And so instead of letting Walker take away the, his, his beautiful type, he decided, the 70-year-old man decided that he was going to throw all of it into the river to get rid of it so that nobody could take it and nobody could use it for any sort of commercial gain at all. And over the course of about six months in 1916, going into 1917, he dumped 500,000 little tiny lead slugs of type into the river at Hammersmith. And Soon after that, he died and it was lost. This, this, this font was lost forever. There was nothing left of it, absolutely nothing. And so fast forward to about 10 years ago and a man called Robert Green comes along and he's a type designer and he wants to use the Dove's tying on. And he tries to recreate it from the typed uh, material that he's got, but it's too difficult because when you press metal into soft paper, it distorts and he can't get it perfect. He wants to produce a digital version of it. And he just can't recreate it. So he decides to read all of Cobden Sanders's journals and there's a lot of them. They're quite rambling and they're a little bit strange um, to work out where he threw the type. And so he does and he thinks he knows where it is and he goes down and he finds 
three pieces on his first visit. And he takes scuba divers from the Port of London Authority back with him on his second visit. And they find altogether 148 pieces of 500,000 pieces. So you can imagine that's all he's found. But it's enough for him to recreate this type. And I interviewed him for the book. And he let slip a few details of where he went to look for the type. And I thought, okay, I'll go down and I'll see if I can find some of it. And I went down and on my first visit, I found a comma. And it's the first, it's the only comma in existence. Um, and it belongs to me. <laughs> and so I persuaded my <laughs> I persuaded my publishers to um, set the epigraphs in my book in dove's type so that everyone can see how beautiful it is because it really is a beautiful type. Um, and uh, I went down one more time and I found an F. And that's what I have. And that's all I need um, of this. And um, so that that's basically very short, in a very short way, the story of the, the dove's type. So a hundred years from now, if there's your equivalent, a mudlark of the future, what do you think that they will be coveting from our age and what do you think they'll be plagued by? It's, it's difficult um, because, you know, even the coins that people are still, you know, flicking coins into the river. People have done that for centuries, haven't they? And it's that kind of, you know, make a wish. Um, but even our coins aren't going to be around because they've got a steel core and the, the modern ones I find are already starting to, to rust away. So even our coins aren't going to be left. Uh, what they'll find is lots and lots of plastic, I'm afraid, um, all sorts of plastic. And I don't know if they're going to value plastic in the future or whether it's still going to be a scourge like it is now. Maybe they'll be looking for iPhones. We find a lot of uh, te uh, telephone phones in for sure. Lots of iPhones. I don't know, a lot of people throwing away their iPhones for one reason or another. Um, I think what they'll be looking for, to be honest, are the um, the Hindu statues and uh, and the religious objects that people are still throwing in because they can be quite beautiful. And I found a lot of those, particularly Hindu, um, but also Tao and Islamic and all, all sorts of Hin of, of religious objects. So I think that those will be the things that the mudlarks of the future will be looking for. So my final question would be, and this might be impossible for you to answer, if I was going to come to your house and take away all your collection of treasures that you found over the years and you're only allowed to keep three items, which would you hold on to? Um, I, would, I would definitely save my Tudor shoe which is my favourite object. It's a child's shoe and it dates from the 16th century and it's just perfect. And I went through hell and high water, quite literally, to get it conserved um, because nobody wanted it. Uh, and I finally managed to get it conserved at the University of Cardiff by a student. And uh, that is my favourite object. So I definitely hold on to that. I would also hold on to my posy ring because that's um, that's just really special, really special. It's beautiful. And it tells such a such a such a wonderful story. And I'd also hold on to my 17th century um, ivory sundial, pocket sundial, um, because it's just it, it's just so unusual. It's really unusual. And that that is one of the objects I found that is really historically important, I suppose. Um, oh, God, it's so hard because there's so many bits that I wouldn't want to, to lose. But but those are probably the, the things I would I'd save. That was Lara Maitland. Her book, Mudlarking, Lost and Found on the River Thames, is available now, published by Bloomsbury. If you're looking for more history content, why not check out the Christmas issue of BBC History magazine, with features on the fall of Roman Britain 
Eleanor of Aquitaine and strange historical Christmas traditions. Or head to our website, historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in again on Thursday when we'll be discussing the experience of Asian migrants in 1980s Britain. Thank you.